0: Good morning, church, and good morning, Elohim Community Church. Thanks for joining us this morning. We are privileged to have you be a part and worship together, our great God. Amen. Amen. Um, As we wrap up chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, I thought it'd be good to take a look at an Old Testament passage regarding the return of the Lord. Um, One of the things I think is important for all of us to do as Bible students and as believers is to make sure we see the continuity and connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament. A lot of times, if we're not careful, we can end up just camping out in the New Testament and we actually miss out on a lot of rich things that the Old Testament has to offer and we can actually uh, misunderstand some of these New Testament passages. Um, Before we, we turn to our passage for today, I want you to think for a moment um, of an athlete who's getting ready and training. The season is coming up, and he's preparing for that season that's getting ready to start. And as his coach has laid out the, kind of the practice schedule for the preseason training, he's got four weeks of some pretty brutal tryouts to go through. Um, what is he doing during those four weeks? I mean, it's going to be a tough and challenging time. But what is he, what, he, what he is doing is he's preparing for what lies afterwards. He's preparing for the season. He's preparing for actual games. Why does he do the training? To be ready for the games, right? So one of the things I, we're going to look at today is, and just like the athlete... He can't focus necessarily and just look at that preseason because that's pretty discouraging. Like four weeks of brutal tryouts and training, strengthening, conditioning. He has to look past that because the goal is not the training. The goal is what happens after the training. The, 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 the training is not the focus. The focus is what happens after that. So he has to keep his eyes on the prize so to speak. He has to keep his eyes on the goal. And oftentimes what happens with us as believers is, is we get focused on short-term things. And we're supposed to focus on the prize. We're supposed, uh, we're supposed to focus on, on what the goal is in the Christian life. But what do we do? We focus instead on the training. So we're supposed to focus on God and seeking first what? His kingdom. Focus on the Lord and his kingdom, yet what do we do as believers, if we're honest with ourselves? We focus on the trials, we focus on the sufferings, and we focus on the hardships. That's the wrong focus. So even if you look forward and see tough times ahead, you have to look past those tough times. That's not the focus. Past those tough times, past those hardships, past those sufferings, is an eternal reward. That's where the focus is. Past those tough times is God returning for His people. Amen? Past those tough times is you in the presence of God for all eternity. Amen? So the Old Testament has a rich theology of God returning for His people. We're just going to look at one chapter in one book today talking about it. But there's a rich theology of God returning for his people and judging the world. And here in the Psalms, you can turn there, we see an entire psalm devoted to it. Turn to Psalm 96. Psalm 96. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are coming back to redeem a people for your own. You're sending your son Jesus to gather us together in the new heavens and the new earth. Lord, we're privileged today to be in your presence and to hear your word. We're privileged today to be able to lift up our voices to sing unto you. We're privileged today to have our brothers and sisters thousands of miles away join us in worshiping you. Join us in hearing the word. We do pray for the church in Belize. We pray your blessing upon that country. We pray your hand upon Elohim Community Church, upon the believers there, upon Pastor Smith, that they would continue to seek you, God, in all things. And let that be true of us as well. We're partnering together for the gospel. We're in fellowship for the gospel. We are partakers of the same cup, partakers of the same bread and wine, partakers of the same baptism, Lord. And we thank you for the unity that we have in Christ. Lord, speak to us now through your word. Let us hear your words clearly spoken to us for your glory. Amen. I'm going to make a few observations about this text, and make some applications along the way. My first observation is this. Notice in verses 1 and 2, there's what we would call a a thrice repetition. Uh, One word being repeated three times. We see the word sing, oh sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth, sing to the Lord. Bless His name, but that's not the only time. There's a a, a a thrice repetition, a word being repeated three times closely together. Look down at verses seven and eight. We see the same thing with the word ascribe. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory. Do His name. Bring an offering. And come into his courts and even again in verse 11 and 12 we we see almost like a triplet of things because it's describing the whole world in verses 11 and 12 because we get let the heavens be glad let the earth rejoice and let the sea and all that fills it fills it let the field exalt and everything in it so we get the heavens the earth and the sea basically all of it using three different words Why this repetition? Well, if you wanted to say it fancifully, some people might describe this as an emphatic Semitic triplet. Yes, dwell on that for a moment. It's the intensification of attributes by means of repetition belonging rather to rhetoric than to syntax. There's nothing fancy, let me translate, there's nothing fancy going on in the Hebrew here The uh, writer of the psalm is just using the same word to make a point. In this case, he's wanting to emphasize something. The idea is this. He wants to make sure that something is extremely emphatic here. What's the emphasis? On worshiping the Lord. So sing. 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 Same with ascribe. What does ascribe mean? It's to attribute something to. So ascribe to the Lord. Ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. So you could call it like he's he's greatly emphasizing something. You could even say it's like a form of the superlative, like greatly ascribe, or the ascribest, if that's even a word. I'm sure it's not. Um, the most singest, or something like that. Like sing. Like I really want you all to sing. I really want you all to ascribe. And here's one of my first uh, points in the form of a question. Back in verses 1 and 2, when it's, when it's commanding the singing, who does this apply to? It applies to us, right? Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. I mean, this is a command, and he's personifying basically the creation But who's the application for? Who does this apply to? Us. The Israelites would have read this. This was their their worship book. They would have read this and realized this is what they need to be doing. Guess what? We need to read this and realize this is what we need to be doing. So some of us need to take note on that. Sing. Same with the scribe. Again, it's to attribute something to What are we doing? We're attributing to God what? Well, we see right there in the verses. Ascribe to the Lord, attribute to Him glory and strength. Does He have glory? Does He have strength? Yes. So he, He has those attributes, so to speak. Those are characteristics of who God is, and that's what we want to make sure we ascribe them to Him and no one else. He has the glory, nobody else. He has the strength, nobody else. Make sure... You give it to him in the fullest measure. In the full, that's why it's sing, sing, sing. Ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. Give it to him in the fullest measure. Okay. Not like some little teaspoon, you know, you're baking cookies or something, and teaspoons and tablespoons are probably pretty important when you're making cookies, right? A teaspoon of salt is different than a tablespoon of salt. True? Yes. <clears throat> My sister, years ago, when we were on vacation... Uh, she was a lot younger at the time. I think she was probably like 14 or 15. But she saw, you know, they shorthanded, and I don't even know the shorthand, but the shorthand, she saw teaspoon but thought it was tablespoon. Okay, those were some salty cookies. Okay. But even as a kid, man, you're like, you're eating them and you're like, wow, this is sweet but kind of nasty, but you're a kid, so you ate the cookies. <clears throat> but my point is here is like, it's not some little teaspoon of measuring not even like a tablespoon, you're ascribing to the Lord the fullest amount you possibly can. Measure upon measure upon measure. How much glory is he due? All of it. We can't measure it. So here, this implicit threefold, we can actually find it other places in Scripture. It's kind of a neat little study to do. Um, and, And it's somewhat rare. We find it, and we'll just look at maybe one or two of them in Isaiah chapter 6, I know you're familiar with it, but I'd like to look at it. Isaiah chapter 6. It says in Isaiah 6, verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, this is Isaiah writing, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So here we see that triplet again. And what is it in regards to? It's in regards to, if you think about the larger context, it's in the context of worship. And who is it applying to? God himself. Not just one holy, not just two holies, but three holies. He's wanting to emphasize something. This angel, I mean, are angels perfect? Yes. So here we got this seraphim. It's a type of angel. And one's calling to another. What are they talking about? God himself and worshiping him. And what are they crying out? Holy, holy, holy. They're speaking truth about God. He is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So they're crying out about God. All the attributes they could have chosen, what's the attribute they chose? His holiness. That's what's being emphasized. And it's interesting as you look at some of these triplets, even back in Psalm 96, again, what's the focus? It's where it should be. It's on God. It's on worshiping him. On here, it's about talking about one of his attributes, his holiness. We see it again in number six with what we would call the Aaronic blessing. Look at number six. Verse 22, number 6, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This was the blessing that was given to them countless times over their history. But how does every statement begin? The Lord, the Lord, the Lord. Where's the focus? Right where it should be, on God himself. So back in Psalm 96, think about this for a moment. Who are we told is returning? It's in verse 13. Before the Lord, for he comes. God himself is returning to the earth. God himself is coming back. Eleven times as we read through that Psalm 96, eleven times the word the Lord is used. That's the Hebrew word Yahweh. Anytime you see it in all caps in your Old Testament, that's that Hebrew word Yahweh. So we see Yahweh used eleven times. In the Old Testament, it tells us the Lord is coming back What does the New Testament tell us? The Lord is coming back, right? And the New Testament tells us that that Lord is Jesus. So the Lord is coming back. What what the Old Testament Israelites just saw glimpses of and maybe not as clear, we see quite clearly. We are blessed with the revelation given to us in the New Testament. But we can see that they line up perfectly. So they're told that Yahweh is coming back. And friends, Yahweh is coming back. He is coming back. Think about creation for a moment. Because that's what's being personified here in Psalm 96. How did it all begin? Well, it began in the beginning, right? And what are we told over and over and over in Genesis 1? Every time God creates something, three words, right? It was good 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 then verse 31 after he creates mankind adam and eve it was very good so listen god creates good things because he's a good god but what about creation right now what happens not in genesis 1 not in genesis 2 but genesis 3 right what happens the fall What happens to creation? It gets distorted. It suffers the effects of sin just as well. Look at Romans 8. This is the present state of creation. Romans 8, verse 18. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So um, what's the creation doing? It's waiting. But it's not just waiting. It's waiting with an eager longing. What? For the revealing of the sons of God. When's that going to fully happen? When Jesus comes back. It goes on. For the creation was subjected to futility. Well, when did that occur? At the fall, right? Then it tells us not willingly. It's not like the creation was like, oh yeah, we'll we'll be a part of that. Right? It wasn't willingly. Sin affects everything. It was true back then. It's true today. So it's subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So creation itself is going to be redeemed. It's going to be renewed. It's going to be set free from bondage to corruption. And look what it says. It will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Then it goes on. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So the creation it's mean, groaning right now. What's the current state of it? Where does it currently stand? It's groaning. And it wants to break out of its bondage. It wants its former beauty and its former glory. Have you ever been in so much pain? that you've just like laid in your bed and you've kind of just groaned like you're in like a fetal position because you're just in excruciating pain and you are groaning that's when you're in pain right i mean if you can kind of if you can kind of handle it i was sick as a dog felt horrible on christmas day that was like the worst christmas gift ever whoever gave it to me no thanks <laughs> It was, it was horrible, but I was not gro- I felt miserable. I felt miserable of miserable, but I was not groaning. But some of you have been in those places where you're in so much pain, like you're groaning. My son, my son, Job, he's a referee for basketball. He was refereeing uh, a girl's basketball game last night. And this girl fell and landed right on her elbow. And there was like this loud pop that everyone heard. And instantly, this little girl... Is screaming bloody murder like for five minutes they had to call the ambulance and everything what was she wanting like some time mean, her parents are out there and everything and trying to console her and calm her down I mean she was longing for some type of relief right that's creation that is creation and here's the thing look what happens The groaning of creation here in Psalm 96. It's groaning, but the groaning of creation becomes the rejoicing of creation at the return of the Lord. So right now it's groaning, it's groaning, and it's it's going to be rejoicing as it sees the day of Jesus quickly arriving. Look back in Psalm 96. Look how it describes it. Verse 11, the heavens are glad. Verse 11 again, the earth rejoices and the sea roars. Verse 12, the fields exult and also the trees of the forest sing. Judgment also comes with this day. Verse 13, for the Lord, he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. So it's also us. Like if you think back to what we just read in Romans when it talks about, the groaning, that very last verse, it says, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And we do have that inward groan. We are longing for Christ to come back. Aching. Maybe physically. Definitely mentally, emotionally. A longing for him to return and to redeem us. To redeem us completely, fully. To see the glorification happen with us and with our brothers and sisters. That, my friends, will be a glorious day. Look at what the people are doing on this day. What are they supposed to be doing? Singing. They're supposed to be ascribing and we have this rich theology here. The world is established, it says, it shall never be moved. Listen, God isn't going anywhere. And neither is his kingdom. Again, it says he will judge the peoples with equity. Listen, God doesn't have two set of scales. He's got one set. He will judge, it says, with equity. I like how Genesis 18 says it when Abraham appeals to God. He says, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fares the wicked. Far be that from you shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. And he will. He will. Will he put the righteous to death with the wicked when he returns? No. Will he treat the righteous like he treats the wicked? No. So one of the things we need, to, we, need to, we need to take away from this is in part, we need to challenge some of the ideas of our day. I had a different section. I'll probably include it next week. But notice how the psalmist does this here. He talks about in verse 4 that the Lord is to be feared above all gods. Is that something that happens in our culture today? No. Many, 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 many false gods put way before the Lord. We gotta challenge some of these ideas because these are the things that, that we're swimming in, in this sea of culture and we can be easily influenced by it without even realizing it. It's like sometimes if you're always surrounded by a culture, it's hard to take a step away from it and maybe see what's what's influencing you. That can be very challenging. It's like the fish out of water. So challenge some of these ideas of the day that are completely false and strike them down. What does he say? In verse 5, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. Everything that the world has to offer, all the idols that it offers up, all the gods that it puts before you, friends, they are nothing. They will do nothing for you. They will let you down every time. Every single time. And there's a passage, we read it at our life group on Friday, where it talks about, you know, the idols, they have, they have a mouth, right? But they can't speak. They have ears, but they can't hear. Hands, but they can't do Like so what's the point of that the idol is worthless has all these features that can't even do what they're designed to do worthless idols friends whatever idols you got in your life whatever's holding you back from the lord you got to strike those down knock them down grind them up toss them in the kidron valley the next thing is this and it's almost like a side note but We need to quit thinking about how it's going to end. A lot of times people get so focused on the end times, but they get focused on the negative stuff of the end times. That's what we've been looking at in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 with the man of lawlessness and different things. And some people, they just camp out there on all the negatives and all the persecution that's going to come. It's kind of like you got like there's 50 chapters in a book and you stopped at the 49th chapter and you just keep reading that one over and over again. Like there's a 50th chapter and that's where Jesus comes back, and good things happen, and he redeems us and saves us. Like, so quit thinking about how it's going to end and start thinking about how it's going to begin. Don't focus on the 49th chapter, focus on the 50th chapter. Focus on the fact that the Lord is coming back. He is coming back. So creation at the return of the Lord, the heavens are going to be glad, the earth is going to be rejoicing, the sea is going to be roaring, the fields are going to be exalting. He's going to make all things new. Listen to Revelation 21. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And in that day, friends, all the hurts, the pains, the hardships, the sufferings, the trials, gone. All things new. All the suffering, gone. And all things new. So what's our reaction? Like, how do we respond to this news? Well, we're given it in verse 4. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. So when, when, when we think... Like, okay, Psalm 96, what do, we, what do we want to see in this passage? What should we be noticing? What things can we notice about first God and then ourselves? Well, guess what? The focus isn't on us. This whole passage, over and over, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. Let's get that into our heads. The focus isn't on us. It's not about how we feel. What we do have is our response to God. It's about what we do. Look at what we do. Verse 1, sing. Verse 3, we declare. Verse 7 and 8, we ascribe. Verse 9, we worship. And verse 10, we're saying something about who God is. Friends, sometimes life isn't really about what you feel, it's about what you do. And this entire passage, where's the focus? Exactly where it should be on God. So what's this, what are we building up to, and what's kind of the crescendo? I mean, everything in those first 12 verses leads us to verse 13 of God coming back. We're singing his praise. We're ascribing his glory. The Lord is coming back, and guess what? We are rejoicing at that truth. Let me ask you this. When this psalm was written, had God come back? Nope. But what were they commanded to do? Praise the Lord. Has the Lord come back yet? No. no. What are we commanded to do? Praise the Lord. It's not optional. It's not optional. Now, I love, I love college basketball, one, one team in particular, the Jayhawks. I'm, I'm a fan, all right? I'm a big fan. Almost to this day, 19 years ago, my dad and I went to the championship game of college basketball. We were down in New Orleans. Our team was in it, and my dad was like, "We're gonna buy some like amazing tickets. All right, we're going all out because our team's in the championship." <clears throat> so we ended up buying two tickets, um, actually from this CBS executive. Had like this little lanyard on and everything. He even gave us the lanyard. It was kind of funny. We're like walking around with these CBS executive lanyards on, acting all cool. We were super close to the court. It was like 13 rows back or something, almost center court. Like, you know, let me tell you something. Like, it was the worst. Because all the people we were seated with were like all the higher-ups that were just there because they got free tickets to the game and it was like the place to be. They weren't fans. They were not fans. Like, they literally did not clap for either team a single time. Like, my dad and I were like, you know, stuck out like sore thumbs. We were all cheering and yelling and screaming and like, Rows and rows of, like, suits and ties. Like, just like... It was almost like you're at golf, you know? (laughs) I mean, mean, seriously. It was horrible. Like, I'm like, take me back to them upper seats, right? (laughs) Because that's where the real fans are. Here's my question. Like, are you a fan of Jesus? And do people know it? Because you could tell who the fans were and who the fans weren't at the game. It was obvious by the way people carried themselves, by the way they interacted with the game. So, in one sense, Psalm 96, it can be a correction or a rebuke for us. Friends, if, if the heavens and the earth and the sea, if they're going to do this at preparation for Jesus coming back, like how much more should we be doing that? Singing, Ascribing to the Lord, declaring who he is. If, if, if that's what this uh, inanimate creation is doing, how much more God's own children? How much more should we be doing that? How much more should we be singing? How much more should we be declaring? How much more should we be ascribing? How much more should we be worshiping? How much more should we be saying to the nations? You realize that there is an intrinsic Beauty to God. And because God creates good things, there's an intrinsic beauty to his creation. Now, when you're driving down the street around 6 p.m. in the early spring, maybe tonight, do you want to see a beautiful sunset or roadkill? <laughs> I mean, whoever said to you, man, look at that awful Nasty sunset. I've never been, had anyone say that, and I've never thought that myself. And who's ever said to you, look at that beautiful, amazing roadkill. I've n- never said that. There's intrinsic beauty that God has built into his creation. We can recognize it. There's a, a story, somewhat well-known, but a violin player, like a world-famous violin player, a few years ago, went into a New York subway with, like, I don't know how expensive the violin was, but at least hundreds of thousands of dollars. World-class violin player playing some of the most beautiful music, and, and people just walked by without even stopping, not even hardly noticing. It was They were kind of running an experiment just to see how people reacted. But guess who almost always stopped? The kids. The kids. They wanted to hear it, like in their innocence, you know? they like they knew there was a beauty to it we get everything flooding us and sometimes we can't even recognize something something beautiful like that do you realize how beautiful god is like it's actually one of his attributes you might not hear about it talked about too much but but god is actually beautiful Not in the physical sense that we might think normally, but in his character. And if we want a definition, it'd be God's beauty is that attribute of God, whereby, listen to this, he is the sum of all desirable qualities. The sum of all desirable qualities. Why do we desire certain things? Is there some quality in that thing that we want? But God is the sum of all desirable qualities. This means there is nothing more desirable than him. Think about that. If he is the sum of everything to be desired, then he is the most to be desired. Look at Psalm 73, because I want you to see this for yourselves. Psalm 73, verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Just let that resonate for a moment. Nothing on earth that I desire besides you. This should be our heart's cry. Here's what one theologian said. The psalmist recognizes that his desire for God, who is the sum of everything desirable, far surpasses all other desires. This desire culminates in a longing to be near God and to enjoy his presence forevermore. Our desire for God should surpass all other desires. All other desires desires. Look at Psalm 27. This is David writing. Psalm 27 verse 4. One thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after. This is what he's asking. Lord, one thing I want Just one thing I'm seeking after, and here it is, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Gaze upon his beauty, inquire in his temple. Worship how great he is, gaze upon his beauty. There was nothing for him to physically gaze at, right? Just like us, we're worshiping the same God. Was the temple even built at this time? no gaze upon the beauty of the Lord inquire in his temple go to where God had set up his place and seek his face that's what he wanted, that's what he's asking the Lord one thing Lord I'm asking you, how about us one thing Lord let me see your beauty let me be in your presence friends if if we don't desire him It's a statement on the condition of our heart, not a statement on who God is. He is truly the most desirable of desirables. And this Lord, he is coming back. That is what we look forward to. Seek first his kingdom. Not seek first all your troubles and your hardships and your tribulations. Seek first his kingdom. Focus on that. Paul reminds us, Romans 8, we just read it, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. All our sufferings, trials, hardships, you could put them together, you could times it by a trillion, and it would still fall short of the glory that's going to be revealed to us. So we focus on God, We focus it. He is coming back for us. And what's the right response when we know that? We worship him. How do we do it? We sing. We use our voices. We're commanded to do it. We declare. We ascribe. We say, it says, to the nations. We witness. But we are worshiping our great God in hopeful expectation as we await His return. He is a beautiful, beautiful God. Very beautiful. I encourage you, exhort you to grasp just that what seems to be somewhat of a simple concept, but a very deep one. He is the sum of all that is to be desired. Therefore, we desire him above everything. Let's pray. Lord, may we desire you above all. Forgive us at times for not. God, I I pray you'd cleanse each one of us here. That you'd wipe away our sins. You'd forgive us for where we've fallen short just this past week for sinful things we've done and said and thought. God, I ask for your forgiveness for all of us. Give us repentant hearts. Forgive us, Lord, for not desiring you as we ought. Forgive us for not worshiping you as we ought, for not ascribing to you the glory that is due you. But thank you, Father, that through your son Jesus, we are cleansed. We are made new again. And you look at your children and you smile. You look at your children and you send your spirit time and time again to fill us so that we can walk in your ways. Lord, fill us now as we continue on in this service that we can worship you in spirit and truth, that we can sing, that we can ascribe, that we can declare how beautiful you are, how amazing you are, how glorious you are. Thank you for being you. You truly are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Be with us as we continue on now. Amen.